Let's pray together. Father, we depend on you completely. Pray that Jesus Christ, our God, our Savior, Lord of our life, would change hearts this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two types of people that I'm preaching to today. One, I'm preaching to the church. I'm preaching to believers, to Christians, people who say, I follow Jesus, I accepted Jesus as my Savior, I'm saved. They know the gospel, they believe the gospel, and are just looking for maybe some guidance on like how to share the gospel with others. And you kind of want maybe like a more basic or elementary, simplified version of the gospel. Because I think that if you ask everyone in this room, write down the most important aspects of the gospel, things that people have to believe in order to be saved, I bet you we get a lot of different answers. Right? It's kind of hard. Like, if, you know, what, what do I have to say when I share the gospel? That's partially, it's a big part of what I want to share with you today. So to the church and to the believers, that's my encouragement for you this morning. And what that assumes is that you want to share the gospel. So I'm making that assumption that you want to share the gospel. And two, the second kind of, the other kind of person that I'm preaching to today are those who are not saved. It would be foolish of me to walk into any room even a church, and assume that every single person sitting down is saved. So, if you're here today, but you're not saved, I assume that I do not need to provide evidence for the existence of God. You came to church, you've probably heard of God, at least aware of him, and have some desire to maybe hear about him or learn about him or, or something. There's something driving you here. And I assume that at least you believe that God exists. So I don't feel like I have to start there. Or even necessarily defend the validity of the Bible. Because the reality is, if you don't know Jesus, if your heart hasn't been transformed by God, then you're going to have a hard time believing anything, any of this anyways. So I'm not going to start with defending the Bible. I'm not going to start with defending the existence of God. I'm going to start with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let him change your mind and your heart, and then we can go from there. So maybe you've spent your whole entire life thinking, you know, I'm good enough. I'm a good person. I call myself a Christian. I affiliate with the Christ, Christian church. I've been good most of my life. Yeah, I've made some mistakes. We all have. I'm not perfect, right? But hey, I try. God wouldn't dare send someone to hell if they're trying, trying to be a good person. I want to be a good person. So I'm saved. And I believe in God. I've been to church a few times. I, I'm going to heaven. That's not the gospel. That does not get you saved. So today I'm preaching the gospel to believers in hopes that you will be equipped to share the gospel effectively. And today I'm preaching the gospel to unbelievers in hopes that you will hear the truth 
And I pray, dear Lord Jesus, that you would believe. So, first and most important question, what is the gospel? So, like I was saying, if you ask a bunch of Christians what the gospel is, right? We, if, I, if I said, what are the most important elements of the gospel? We'd maybe come up with some variations of, of answers. But if I just said, what's the gospel? I think that most Christians would kind of summarize it down to these coarse things. You're a sinner and Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave to save you. Right? That's the gospel in a nutshell. And I mean a tiny little nutshell. Like that is the most simplified version of the gospel. But the question is, is that enough? Is that all that people have to believe in order to be saved? What does someone have to know and understand to be saved? Uh, do they have to believe in the Trinity to be saved? I mean, they certainly don't have to believe, you certainly don't have to believe or, or even know the word Trinity to be saved. And if you don't know the word Trinity, you're like, what is he talking about? What's the Trinity? Right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three, one God and three persons. That's Trinity. Try, you, and God. Right? Do, they, do you have to believe in the triune God in order to be saved? I mean, someone could get saved, and then the next day you say, so, you've got the Holy Spirit. And they're like, the Holy what? Right? They don't even know. They haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Are they saved? I think they can be. But then again, if someone gets saved, so, oh, I just got saved. And you're like, oh, so, you, so, so Jesus is God. You believe that Jesus is God? Like, oh, Jesus isn't God. He's just some dude who died for me. Well, now, now we got a problem. You have to believe that Jesus is God in order to be saved, right? So, like, what are the most essential things to believe? What, and, and, and does it matter to the Christian if you already believe? I think it does because it totally affects your testimony and your ministry. And I want to get down to the most basic, simple truths that someone must believe. Uh, what, like, what is the least, the very least, that someone has to believe in order to be saved. Because if I can know the very least amount of things that I have to tell someone to be saved, honestly, I think it makes sharing the gospel with people much easier. It takes all the anxiety out. It's like, you don't have to save them. You can't save them anyways. It's not your work. You just have to say these simple truths. So, I want to equip you with the tools to share the gospel. But first... Let me make a, a quick case for why we must share the gospel so that you are properly motivated once you have these basic elements of the gospel. Because you have to tell you all the, the things you need to do to share the gospel, but if you don't want to, you're not going to do it. So, if, if we are not spreading the gospel as a church, if we are Christians who do not share the gospel with people who don't believe, then what are we? Because we aren't the church if we're not sharing the gospel with the lost. Okay? I mean, you think about what Jesus says. The very last command he gives us in Matthew 28, he says, he does not say, stay where you are, build a building, spend all your time in that building together, and create lots of programs and ministries, and invite people who don't care what you're doing into your building, and they'll certainly come. It's not gonna work, it's not evangelism. 
I mean, you could say, well, we do share the gospel to this church because we've got things like Kid Town. It's a great Christian ministry where children from the community come to our church and we serve them food and play games and we teach them the gospel. We teach them the Bible. We share the love of Jesus with them. That is evangelism. It certainly is. And it's a wonderful ministry, which I love. And for those of you who are involved, I know you love it too. It's a great ministry. Fantastic. We're serving these children with the gospel. But Jesus doesn't say, stay and make disciples. What does he say? Go. That's the first command there. Go. Go get them. Go into the community. Go into your world. Go to work. Now, there's a lot of discussion about how that is. How, you, how to do that Why in a wise way. How to do that in an effective way. How to do it in a respectful and responsible and efficient way. Right? I, I've said this many times. You don't just like kick in the door to your work and you're like, I had a good sermon yesterday about sharing the gospel. Everybody listen up. You're going to hell. You need Jesus. That is not going to be effective and you'll probably get fired. And you'll be like, I was persecuted for the gospel. No, you weren't. <laughs> there, are, there are smart ways to do it. <laughs> And I'm not going to get into all those details. I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom, okay? But if we don't share the gospel, then who will? Romans 10, 14 through 15 says this. How can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What's the good news? The good news is the gospel. So I'm going to give you a little language lesson here, really quick. Okay? You don't have to remember this. I think some people want to hear this information. Okay? The, word good, or the, the word gospel comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, which is Goad, G-O-D, not God, but goad. It means good and spell, which means tell. So good tell. That's what it means. So we get the word gospel from goad spell, which means good tell. It means you're telling somebody something good. That's why we call it good news, because of that Anglo-Saxon word goad spell. Right? Now, that Anglo-Saxon word goad spell comes from the Greek word euangelion, which is the Greek word in scripture that we find when we see the word gospel or we see the words good news. Like in Luke 2, when an angel comes to the shepherds and says, I bring tidings of good news and great joy, Jesus is born. That's that word euangelion. He's saying good news. I'm bringing to you the gospel. That's why we call the gospel good news. And that's what Paul says here. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How will they ever know Jesus if we don't tell them about Jesus? Stop assuming people know about Jesus. They don't. In fact, if we keep thinking that way, we will not only become a, a culture that starts to forget about Jesus, but we will also, be, we also raise our children with the example that we don't talk to people about Jesus, and it will be a foreign idea to our children, so they'll never talk to anyone about Jesus, and our future generations are going to have nothing to do with Jesus. And I think if that becomes the case, we're going to start seeing the end come really quickly. Because Paul or Jesus himself talks about how, and Paul also talked about how the end times is just 
thriving with disobedience and rejecting God and the non-existence of believing in the gospel. Not non-existence, but a lack of it in our world. So, what he also shares with us is that near the end, there will be an increase, an increase of the gospel. So let me say to this, for all of you who are maybe like really into like, the end is coming, the government's going crazy, they're trying to sell us this and that, and oh, I can see. And you got all these, I know some of you think, oh, like conspiracy theory people. Not necessarily conspiracy kind of people, but people who are like really interested in the end times. And you start seeing the end times, start telling everyone, oh, the end's coming, the end's coming. Listen, if you are so excited about the end times, here's what you do. Preach the gospel. If you want Jesus to come back, then preach the gospel. Because one absolute guarantee that Jesus will return is an increase of the gospel. That's what we're told in scripture, that he will return as the gospel just accelerates in our world. So if you care at all about Jesus coming back, share the gospel. Okay, Pastor Mark, I get it. We have to share the gospel. I'm excited. You didn't have to convince me, but good job anyways. Tell me what I need to tell people. Get to the point, right? Make it easy for me. Make it plain and simple and clear so I can take that information and easily share it with others. I'm going to do that for you, but first, <laughs> sorry, this is, I'm leave, trying to leave you with cliffhangers so you get really excited about the gospel. First, we have to realize one very important thing. It is not us who saves people, okay? God saves people, not us. We are simply the instruments he uses to save them. God is a sovereign God. And if he wants to save somebody, you are the means by which he will save them. Your voice, your mind, the gospel he's given to you is the instrument he uses to give the gospel to people so that they can believe. You're not saving anybody. You're just telling them how you got saved. So when I talk to non-believers, they're like, oh, I just can't stand Christians who are... I'm sorry, not all non-believers talk to that. It's really rude of me. Um, you know... I don't like Christians because they don't live a godly life. They're hypocrites. I'm like, my response is, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I am. I tell you to obey God when I struggle to obey God. Of course I'm a hypocrite. Logically speaking, theologically speaking, doctrinally speaking, I'm not a hypocrite. Because my doctrine, my theology is consistent and logical and reasonable, and I stand by it. But I proclaim that, that I, or, or I, I say that I want to be obedient and good, but then I turn around, and then I stand up here and I preach to you, oh, be good, be good, you know, obey God, do this, do that, uh, believe the gospel. And then I'm living my life doing my own sin. Yeah, I'm a hypocrite. So when non-Christians tell me that, I'm like, yeah, so are you. We're all hypocrites. We're all sinners. I'm not better than you. I'm not more special than you. I didn't do anything unique to get what I'm telling you you need. I'm just telling you, I got something free that I don't deserve, and it's the best thing you could ever get. You should have it too, right? When you, when you go up to somebody and you're like, oh my goodness, did you see that new movie? Did you see that? It was so good. you got to go see it. The person, what, how do they respond? They go, oh, really? I want to go see it. Yeah. They don't go, oh, you're such a hypocrite. You can't like that movie. 
You didn't like it when it first came out 20 years ago, and now they did a remake, so you're not a genuine fan. People don't talk that way, right? No one does it. They're like, oh, cool, yeah, I want to go see that movie. I'm not, I didn't make the movie. They're not like, oh, well, you like that movie, but you don't live by that movie. I know, it's just a movie. Of course I don't live by it. People don't hold me accountable to being consistent and congruent with the movie I just enjoyed. I'm just telling you how excited I am about it. I didn't make the movie. I just went and watched it. Now, there's some fault in this analogy, but the reality is, <laughs> there's some disconnect there. But still, the reality is, I didn't make the gospel. I just believe it. I don't deserve it. I just received it. It was a free gift. I took it. I'm just telling you about it. So you can tell me how wicked I am and how I'm not a good Christian. Fine. But you're still held accountable to this gospel message. My, in, my inconsistency to be a good Christian does not change the fact that you will go to hell if you don't believe it. So if you, so Christians, listen, you're not perfect <laughs> yet. It's okay. People are going to tell you when you share the gospel people, they're going to tell you you're not perfect. Be ready to say, exactly. And that's why you need the gospel. That's your response. Okay, so, we have to trust that the Holy Spirit will do the work, not us. Because it's not me, I didn't make the gospel, I just believed it. And now I'm going to share with other people, and I want them to believe it. But I can't make them believe. I can do all the convincing in the world, and explain all the doctrine, and say all the points, but I can't make them believe. And I am not held accountable to God, or responsible to make people believe. That nowhere in scripture are we told that we have to make sure those people believe. Our only responsibility to the gospel is one that we personally believe. And then once we do, our other responsibility is that we are faithful to share it with others. That is all you're held accountable to, is that you share it with others. That's it. Let God do the work. So you share the gospel with somebody and they don't believe, that's not your fault. You've done your duty. Whether they believe or not, that's God, that's God at work. You let him do his work. Your job, tell him. And we're all so afraid to tell people because we're going to get rejected. And Jesus like very clearly said, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So don't worry about it. Let them reject you. It's Christ they're rejecting. Okay? So share the gospel. Like Paul says in Romans 1.16, Without shame, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why are you not ashamed of the gospel, Paul? Because it is the power of God to save. I'm not ashamed because I know, I know that when I share the gospel, it is so powerful, more powerful than my argument, more powerful than my points and my statements, more powerful than my explanation of the gospel is the reality of the gospel itself. It's so powerful that all I have to do is say it, and it works. It saves souls for eternity. If you, you have to go into conversations trusting that reality. And what we do is we go into conversations trusting our own reality. We go into conversations trusting ourselves, trusting our form of argumentation, trusting our perspective, trying to trust in, am I good enough? This person's going to see that I'm a hypocrite, so I can't talk to them because they'll call me out of my sin, and then my gospel falls apart. No, it doesn't. Your gospel stands on the fact that you're a sinner. And your gospel stands not on you and your character or your goodness or your explanation, 
or your argumentation. It stands on the power of God. You just have to let it out. So, what are the essential things that someone must believe to be saved? What is the least that someone must believe to be saved? Now, if we know that, then we will know what to tell them. And then so Paul gives us, I think, at least, probably there are more, but really just two, I'd I'd say, are the most simplistic gospel statements in Paul's writing. I think Jesus gives an even more simplistic version, which we'll get to. But Paul gives two. The first one is in Acts 16.31. Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Ha! Huh. That's it. Romans 10.9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you've got two statements saying you will be saved. One's very, very simplistic, believe in the Lord Jesus. And the other one's a little bit more. It kind of explains what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus. It means confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and then believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So we've got these gospel basics. But even within Paul's simple gospel here, there are truths that, are required to, that we are required to believe that he does not explicitly state in these verses, but they are assumed inside of these verses, but they're not clear, so we've got to pull them out and see what they are. Okay, so like Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. So people probably look at that and go, hey, I believe Jesus existed, I'm saved. No, that's not the gospel. That's not what believe in the Lord Jesus means. So we want to pull out of that text, what does believe in the Lord Jesus mean? Believe what about the Lord Jesus? Because it doesn't just say believe he existed. And it doesn't just say believe he's God. Paul gives us a little bit more in Romans 10.9. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So that's a little more helpful. It's a little more information. But what are the primary, most important, essential elements to be saved? And out of these texts, we draw these five truths. Five truths that you must believe to be saved. So if you're a Christian, write these down. One, two, three, four, five. Take them with you. Put them in your Bible. Have them with you at all times. Look at them every day, every couple days, once a week. I don't know, whatever. And remind yourself of these five things. So if you're in a situation to share the gospel, you could literally just say these five things. Number one. We are sinners. You have to believe that. Jesus died for your sins. Okay? 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Okay, so if Jesus died for your sins, then that means what? There's sins to die for. If there's no sin, then Jesus didn't die for our sins, and all the scriptures that tell us Jesus died for our sins are wrong, which means the Bible's wrong. Which means Jesus, if he didn't die, then he also didn't rise from the grave. And if he didn't rise from the grave, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then we should be pitied more than anybody because we believe in an entirely false religion and God and we have nothing to stand on. In which case he says, and if that's true, just get drunk and party all day. 
That's literally the solution. If the gospel's not true, just waste your life. Just spend your life doing whatever you want. So, if Jesus dies for your sins, then that means there's sins that you have. Meaning, you have to believe you're a sinner in order to be saved. You can't be saved if you don't think you're a sinner. 1 John 2, I'm sorry, 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay? And I think convincing people that they are sinners should be rather easy. Right? I, so Francis Schaeffer uh, once was asked, if you had an hour on a train to share the gospel, how would you spend it? He said, I'd spend 45 minutes on the problem and 15 minutes on the solution. What good is a gospel that saves you if you don't even believe you need help? We have to convince people that they're bad, which is the total opposite of our culture that fills us with this garbage that you're good enough. You're a good person. No, you're not. You're not. You're not good. I hope you feel bad about that. I'm just teasing. Okay. <laughs> because we also have to balance the fact that you're not good with the reality that God doesn't make garbage. Someone said that to me the other day. They were like, oh, I don't remember exactly how it was worded, but they're talking about, oh, I'm just so blah, blah, blah. I'm ripping on them. So I said, you're full of it, man. God doesn't make garbage. God made you beautiful in so many ways. He made you like him. And he's awesome. You know what that means? You're awesome, right? So, at the same time, you're also completely saturated with a sinful nature that is wicked, and it's not good. So as our culture tells you, you're good, you're good, you're good, the gospel says, no, you're not. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which you are, but in your character, you're just not good enough. So convincing people that they're sinners should be rather easy. I mean, it's as simple as saying, you know, you can ask somebody, have you ever done anything morally wrong ever in your life? Just one, just one morally wrong thing. Who's going to say, no, I never have? And if they do, you can say, right there, you're arrogant. There, morally wrong. You just told me you've never done anything wrong. Everyone's made mistakes. Everyone's sinned. Have you ever lied when you were a child? Yeah, all of you did. Okay? Were you selfish as a child? Yeah. All of us were. Were you selfish as an adult? Yeah, a lot of us are. Right? You, you, can, you easily can find a route to someone who's done, to anybody, if they've done something wrong. And if they say, fine, yeah, I've, I've done something wrong, but I'm a good person, then you just refer to James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law, whole law, you're perfect. You haven't missed a single step obedience in your entire life but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it <laughs> that's not that that doesn't sit well with a culture that demands a balance of justice and God's what he's saying there is my standard is perfection and you don't meet it so Helping people identify that they're sinners is as simple as getting them to admit that they've done at least one thing wrong in their life. And then you can say, that means you're guilty of everything in God's eyes. And that's on a, like a practical level because the other reality is that we don't, 
We didn't become sinners because we first sinned. We sin because we're born sinners. So even if you've never done anything wrong, which is not true or possible, you still have a sinful nature that needs Jesus, period. So that's the first thing we have to convince people. You have to believe that you need help. Like I said, 45 minutes on the problem, 15 minutes on the solution. The solution means nothing if people don't identify that they need help, that they need saving. So we have to show them how important it is and how, how deadly their sinful nature is. And use yourself as an example because we all have that sinful nature. Number two, God is perfect. Okay, you have to believe in God. You have to believe that there's a God who sets a standard of which your sin does not reach. Okay, you have to believe that there's a God whose standard is perfection, and that perfection comes from that God's perfect nature of which we all fall short. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have to believe that God in his holiness and perfection is the standard, which is why if somebody just breaks one rule in God's law, they're guilty of them all because God goes, you're not perfect. My requirement is up here. It is perfection. You don't get to be 80% good and say, well, it's better than 50% because I think that the common belief is I go to heaven if I'm more good than more bad or if I try to be good. So God's just up there making a tally. Every time I do something good, good, oh, bad. Oh, good, oh, bad. Hope the good outweighs the bad one day. Newsflash, two things. Number one, that's not the gospel. It will not save you, even if all your good is more than your bad. Number two, none of us have more good than bad. <laughs> oh, man. Let me just ask you this. What if we took every single thought you've had for the last 48 hours and moved, turned it into a visual movie and put it on the screen and we all watched it? Don't tell me you're good. Because none of you would agree to that. I wouldn't agree to that. <laughs> we have to be perfect like him. That's the standard. It's not a check mark. It's not a balance of more good than bad. It's not if I'm 51% good and 49% bad, I'm into heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you have to be perfect and you're not. Sin literally means, the word sin literally means missing the mark. Like a, like a target practice. Trying to hit the bullseye, you can't hit the bullseye. The bullseye is perfection, you have to hit the bullseye. Sin says you can't hit the bullseye. That's us missing the mark because of our sin. So if we miss the mark, that must mean that there's a mark that we're missing. And that mark is the perfection of God, which leads to the third thing that we must believe. So look at what happens. Number one, we're sinners. Number two, God's perfect. So a lot of us start here. God made me awesome, like Pastor Mark just said, so I'm pretty cool. God's better than me, though. He's up here. Well, this is what the gospel does. The gospel says, you're not up here. You're a sinner. You, you've broken all of God's commandments. You're guilty of everything. You're down here. You're below the ground. And now, 
God is perfect, transcendent, holy, righteous, good. There's nothing about him that's anything like us in perfections. He's not just, it's not like we're down here and God's here. It's like we're as far away from God as you could possibly get. Romans 3, 10 through 18 tells us no one desires God. No one wants God. No one does. No one pursues God. No one is good. No, not one. We are so far from loving God or wanting God or desiring God. We run from God without Jesus. So we're way down here. We're sinners. And God's like out of the stratosphere and at the ends of the universe and beyond. That's the gap that we just created. So for anybody who thinks like, oh, God's within reach, not even close. There is a chasm between your sinfulness and God's perfection that is so wide, there is nothing on earth that any human could ever do to fix or to to bridge that gap. It's impossible. And because of that gap, because of our imperfection, God's standard and his requirement is perfection, and we don't meet it. Number three, we deserve his wrath. Because he's perfect... Like we just, I, I think the world looks at the God, looks at God and says, "Well, He's a loving God, and a loving God wouldn't send someone to hell." But listen, love is not God's primary characteristic. The Bible says God is love one time, once. Do you know how many times the Bible says God is holy? Some seventy-eight times. His primary characteristic is that He's holy, meaning He is pure and perfect and set apart and transcendent, which means he's just and he's loving. He is vengeful and full of wrath on evil, just as he is gracious and merciful. So we can't just appeal to God's love and say, oh, God loves, so therefore a loving God would never send me to hell. Yeah, but he is also just as much a just judge as he is a loving God. And his justice demands that a price be paid for your evil and sinful nature that opposes him and offends him on a regular basis. Which means, because we are sinners, because we're way down here, because God is perfect, way up there, we deserve the fullness of of his vengeance and his wrath on our sin. Now, if anyone goes, well, that doesn't seem fair. Like, why wouldn't he just, that's not, that doesn't seem fair. I thought he was gracious. Listen, if you were watching a murder trial and there was a man who killed his entire family, wife and children, and, and he admitted to it, and the evidence was overwhelming, and the judge said, you know what, no one goes to jail today. You're free to go. We'd all be going, What? What are you doing? That guy would get murdered. (laughs) People would be like, we're going to kill that guy. He has to go down. There has to be justice. And we're all for justice until it comes back onto us. And we're held accountable for our sin. Well, God wouldn't send me to hell. He's a just God. You think earthly judges... You demand earthly judges be just, but you don't demand the judge of the universe be just? If he is, we deserve hell. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. He sets the standard, you fall short. And his justice demands that you pay the penalty for missing the mark. And that penalty is terrifying. Romans, or Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
Hell is real. And it is terrifying. You have no idea. Whoever created the I mean, it had to be Satan who created this idea that like, I can't wait to go to hell and hang on. My buddies are going to rock out and drink beer all day. Woo! That's not hell. Hell is literally the absence of God. So for non-Christians who walk this earth today, you know what they get? God's common grace. God is gracious to them every single day. He provides food and water and sunshine and rain and family and love and good things and money and jobs. He provides and he provides and he provides. The Bible's clear. It's all over. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He gives the sunshine to the just and the unjust. Non-believers today, this is, not, this is nothing compared to hell. This is, your life now is full of God's grace that he gives to every human. Hell is the absence of anything gracious from God. He still controls and runs and operates hell at all times. Satan's not in charge of hell. Satan will burn in the fires. He will suffer forever. He doesn't rule anything. God rules hell. And I know it sounds harsh that God sends people to hell, but he does, and it's just and it's fair, and we deserve it. That's the gospel. And that's harsh, and that's what we're afraid to tell people. But we shouldn't be afraid to tell people that. You want to know why? Because that's the problem, but there's a solution. Number four, Jesus died for you. You are incapable of solving this problem of falling short of God's standard of perfection because you are a sinner, and you are not perfect, and you can't be good enough on your own. So God solves the problem for you, right? God knows the gap. God's like, your sin keeps you away from me. I'm perfect. I cannot fellowship and have you in my presence for eternity unless you're perfect too. So your sin, your imperfection receives my justice, my judgment, my damnation to you, and you cannot spend eternity in my presence because I require perfection and holiness, right? And because we can't fix that problem, because that chasm between us and God is so wide, God says, here's the thing. Yes, I'm a just judge. And yes, I will send people to hell for rejecting me and for their sinful nature. But here's the good part. I will fix your problem for you. Well, why would you do that, God? Because I love you. How will you do that, God? Because I'm gracious. I'm full of grace. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it. That's love, and that is grace, and that is the gospel. So he sends his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life. You couldn't live that perfect life. Jesus lives it for you. Jesus dies on the cross. That's your death. You deserve to die that. You deserve to go to the grave. Jesus goes for you. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You must believe that the cross is the only way to be saved, that through Jesus is the only way to be saved, that Jesus is perfect and never sinned. Jesus cannot have sinned. You have to believe Jesus never sinned. So these are two very important things you have to believe as a Christian. I'm a sinner. Jesus is not. Because if Jesus is a sinner then he's not qualified or worthy enough to die for my sins. So when he goes to the cross, it means nothing. If he had sinned even once, then he is just as qualified as I am, which is not qualified at all. 
So if he dies and he sinned and then he dies, that death means nothing. It's not a sacrifice. It has no value. He just dies and stays dead. Just like us, we just die and we stay dead. We, the only thing that makes Jesus, the thing that makes Jesus' death valuable is that he's perfect. So he becomes a worthy sacrifice. He takes our place so that when we die, even though we're not perfect, if we're attached to Jesus in faith, we get his credit of perfection. He has to be perfect. If he's not perfect, what credit do we get? His sinful credit? That doesn't help us at all. I'm already a sinner. I need something perfect. Jesus never sinned. He could not have sinned. You have to believe he's perfect. And you have to believe that you're a sinner. So you must believe that Jesus is perfect. And he's a perfect God who died for your sins. And finally, number five. Jesus rose from the grave. You have to believe that. Revelation 1.18. Jesus says, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive temporarily. No, forevermore. If Jesus stays dead, we're still in our sins, right? When Jesus rose from the grave, he conquered sin and death. Sin has a power, and sin's power is death. Sin's job is to kill you. That's its job, to kill you. So sin wields death and, and haunts you with death and says, you're going to die, and I'm going to help you get there, and I'm going to tempt you, and I'm going to poke and prod at you, and I'm going to pull you into my into the deep mire of gross, disgusting, putrid sin, and I'm going to bury you till you're dead forever. And you're going to die in your sin. That sin's power is, holds over you. It's death. You're going to die this physical death, and then you're going to suffer for eternity in hell. That's sin's job, to hold death over your head. And Jesus dies carrying your sins. And sin goes, ha ha, I got the Son of God. And he had sin on him. Your sin and my sin. He was carrying it with him when he died, and now he's dead. Ha! Death wins again. And Jesus is like, no, it doesn't. And he powers through death and says, death can't keep me dead, and sin just lost its power. So now Jesus has conquered death and conquered sin, which means the one thing that is keeping us from God, sin, and the one thing that sin leads to, our eternal death, has just been destroyed by Jesus. By rising from the So if he doesn't rise from the grave, then he's still dead. And you don't worship a living God, you worship a false God. So you have to believe that Jesus rose from the grave. And it's the primary difference between the truth, which is the gospel, and every other false world religion that exists in the entire world. Mormonism, Buddhism, Hinduism. I don't know what, I could keep going. There's every, every religion. Every religion that does not proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ Paul says in Galatians 1, is cursed. Because the God, their God, is not real. What's the difference between their false God and our real God? Ours is alive. Alive. He's the only one who's ever died for you. 
Every other religion in the world demands one thing from you. You sacrifice your life for them. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. True religion, true faith, the real gospel says God sacrifices for you. Because that is the power of a gracious God. Because God can sacrifice for you. Because God can destroy sin and death. Because God owns sin and owns death. And he owns the concept of sin and death. And he owns the concept of time and reality and existence. He can do with it as he pleases. All these false gods have no power because they're not real. They can't tell you that all conquer sin and death because they don't even exist. They don't own it and they didn't create it. So they have no power over it. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says, I will die for you, and then I will conquer sin and death for you. And all you have to do is one thing. I'll tell you that in a second. So these are the five things that, you, that must be believed in order to be saved, right? We are sinners. We are sinners. God is perfect. We deserve his wrath. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose from the grave. You have to believe that to be saved. Okay. But there's just another element that's laced throughout all of this that we have to talk about. And it is belief. So if you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you have to believe these things. That's called faith, right? So we are saved by faith through grace, or by grace through faith. So we have to believe these things. It's not just enough to tell, them, to tell the people these things. We have to tell them to believe them. The, the gospel is a command. Paul says, as many as obeyed the gospel, which means the gospel is a command that requires obedience. The gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you don't, you've disobeyed the command from God to be saved. We have to not just share the gospel with people, but tell them to believe it. You have to respond to the gospel with faith or you can't be saved. So you can hear all these things, but it means nothing unless you decide, I believe that. I want that. I want that Jesus to be my Lord. I want that Jesus to be my Savior. I want a God who is active and alive and powerful and living and working and saving and gracious and loving and just and kind and merciful and forgiving. I want that God. Because if that's not your God, who is? Yourself. <laughs> you can say you worship some other God, which I assume if you're here you don't worship some other false God. And if you don't worship Jesus, then who are you worshiping? Yourself. You have your own religion. If you have your own religion, you are your own God. I don't mean to sound crass, but good luck with that. I mean, that ain't going to get you anywhere. What's your heaven look like then? Because if you're your own God, you've got to make your own heaven. Did you make it? What does it look like? Like, you get the logic there? Like, if you don't worship Jesus, you worship yourself. And if you worship yourself, then you're, like, Romans chapter 4, chapters 2 through 4, explain that, like, if you want to create your own belief system, then fine. Go ahead and create your own belief system, and God will hold you accountable to it. Because even if you created your own system of belief, it will fail. Because you aren't God. 
So, we have to tell people to believe this. Mark 1.15. I told you earlier that Jesus has the most simplified version of the gospel. Here it is. Mark 1.15. Believe in the gospel. <laughs> How's that for short and sweet? That's how you end your gospel presentation. Believe in the gospel. Commanded by Jesus. So, let me just end with this. If you walked in here today not believing, but now you believe, like maybe you walk in you're like, I don't really know if I'm a believer or not. Okay, and then, and, but, but now you hear the gospel, you're like, okay, I get it. I'm a sinner. God is perfect. I deserve his wrath, but Jesus died for me and he rose from the grave and all I have to do is believe. Okay, yes, I believe that. I want to spend eternity with God. I want to have Jesus. I want to be saved. That's you. You walked in here today not believing that and now you do believe that. First of all, praise God for his unspeakable grace to you and to us that we do not deserve, none of us deserve. But if that's you and you now believe, then I think for most people, the question is, okay, what do I do? How do I really know I believe? Is there some magic button that I push that makes it all official? Like, yes, I believe. Ding! And then your bell rings in heaven and you're included. Is there, is there, I got to make it official. I mean, that's just the way we are. We're very tangible, practical people. We want it to make sense. Is there this thing that I can like, you know, do I just write the church a check and boom, I'm saved? No. Nope. Has nothing to do with money. Has nothing to do with giving. Has nothing to do with being at church or coming to church. If you believe right now, you're saved. That's it. You don't have to do anything. That's it. You're saved. But you're a human like me. And like me, I assume you need something tangible that makes sense. So I'm going to give you something tangible. I'm going to pray with you. That, I, think, I think that's the best way to do it. You just tell God, all right, God, I believe. That's a prayer. That's a prayer. Do you realize that? God, I believe. That's a prayer. And that's your first prayer as a Christian. God, I believe. It can be that simple. But let me, let me help you. Okay? If it helps you make it feel like it's official and you want something tangible, then pray. And pray like this. So I'm, I'm going to pray. All right? Very simple, what I'd call maybe a gospel prayer, salvation prayer, whatever. If you're about to pray this, you're saved before you're praying it. Keep that in mind. This prayer does not save you. This is your expression of what he's already done. Okay. I'm going to say it, and I'm going to go slow, so that if you feel the desire to repeat this and pray this to God, then you can follow along. So I'm going to talk to God with you right now. And if this is the first time you believe, I want you to say this with me, if, if you want. God, I am a sinner. You are perfect. And my sin offends you. And I deserve your wrath. But I believe that because of your grace, you love me and sent Jesus to die for me and to rise from the grave to save me. Help me follow you obey you, serve you, and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you believe and prayed that prayer, first of all, please come tell me. Because I want to love you and serve you and shepherd you and give to you and teach you and spend time and energy. I want to, I want to build with you. Man, even if you didn't just pray that, still come talk to me. I still want to love you and serve you and pray with you and do everything I can for you and shepherd you and all that stuff. I don't care whether you're a believer or not. But if you just pray that, let's, let's talk. Because it's one thing to say, I believe this gospel. But if that's true, then you will follow Jesus now. And sometimes that's hard. And that is why you go to church. To do it with other people. Being a church doesn't save you. Being a church is the response of somebody who loves Jesus and wants to worship with his people and depends on others and builds relationships and fellowships together and counts on one another and hold each other accountable and worship God together corporately. And for believers, take this home. These are the questions you ask people. Do you believe you're a sinner? Do you believe that God is perfect? Do you believe that you deserve God's wrath? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? And do you believe Jesus rose from the grave? Those are the questions you ask people. That's simple. And if they believe, praise God. If they don't, it's not you they're rejecting. It's time to be bold. It's, you know, I don't agree with all this ideas that we should be just like the first century church. That's a lot of people believe that. We should go back to home churches and all those things. That that's what the first century church is like. The first century church wasn't meant to stay. The first century church was meant to grow and expand and build and take over the world with the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. But you know what the first century church did a lot more than we do? Share the gospel. That piece we're missing. Let's be a church that spreads the gospel. Father, we thank you so much for the goodness of your grace in Jesus Christ. We do not deserve this, but you have given it. I, there isn't enough time left in my life to express the gratitude you deserve for saving me. So, you remove the idea of time and you bring us into eternity and say, here, celebrate me now forever. There's enough time. I look forward to that, God. I look forward to doing it with the people in this room. pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 I love you all very much. Mothers, do not forget a rose. And fathers, grab a baby bottle. Have a good week.